From Dartmouth Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on providing up-to-date healthcare-related information in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm your host, Jesse Swain, System Director of Infection Prevention at Dartmouth Health, here with Dr. Jose Mercado, Regional Medical Director for Inpatient Quality. Today, we're talking with Margaret Worth, Infection Preventionist and Quality Specialist at Mount Escutney Hospital and Health Center in Windsor, Vermont, and Morgan Coonley, Infection Preventionist at Dartmouth Health in Lebanon, New Hampshire, to give a little updated information on the current monkeypox situation. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. So... After COVID-19, monkeypox is the next biggest headline of late. Morgan, can you start us off today by telling the listeners what the risk factors are for acquiring monkeypox? Of course. So to start off, monkeypox is spread through direct or indirect contact with body fluids or lesion materials. So heightened risk of developing monkeypox are associated with contact with those fomites or inanimate objects and exposure to respiratory secretions during prolonged face-to-face contact. Examples of that high and intermediate risk exposure include sharing towels and bedding, which has the infectious bodily fluids and scabs where those may be present, skin-to-skin contact with a patient who has monkeypox, and then being inside the patient's room or within six feet of a person or patient during any procedure that may create aerosols whether that be from oral secretions or any other method. Also contact with skin lesions, resuspension of dried exudates without wearing an N95 or equivalent respirator or higher, and eye protection. Thanks, Morgan. So as we're considering the risk factors for transmission, what should healthcare workers do to protect themselves when caring for a patient with monkeypox? So in addition to our normal standard precautions, healthcare providers should care for patients with monkeypox with a gown, with gloves, with eye protection, which should be goggles or a face shield that covers both the front and sides of the face, and then a NIOSH-approved particulate respirator, which is equipped with an N95 filter or higher. Great. It sounds like the risk of transmission to healthcare workers is low, especially when appropriate PPE is worn and hand hygiene is performed. Yes, this illness, although transmissible, appears to be less contagious than COVID. Margaret, could you tell us what the prevalence of cases nationally and locally look like? Sure. So this summer has seen a significant outbreak of monkeypox. Starting in mid-May, in the past, monkeypox is not commonly spread broadly outside of Central and West Africa. So though this outbreak is affecting many Americans, as Jose shared, it is much harder to get monkeypox than COVID or even the flu. Good news is that cases are currently trending down nationally after a steady increase until about mid-August. Thanks, Margaret. Is there any data to suggest what populations would be at risk for increased severity of illness or mortality? Yes, there is actually. So people who are immunocompromised are under the age of eight, have a history of eczema, or those who are pregnant or lactating should take extra care to avoid contact with monkeypox because they are at higher risk for severe illness or death. And this may sound frightening, but we're talking about less than 1% of people who contract monkeypox who will get severely sick or die. Over 99% of people who contract the illness will recover. That is reassuring. Yes, it is. 
Margaret, can you also describe what symptoms patients are presenting with and if this is pretty consistent? Yeah. So all people who contract monkeypox will experience a rash. The rash tends to go through a number of distinct stages. Initially, it can look like pimples, but will eventually evolve to include papules, vesicles, which are like commonly seen with chicken pox and other things like that, and then pustules that are a little bigger and are as gross as they sound. Then the scabs tend to be deep-seated and are firmer rubbery and have a well-defined round border. The other interesting thing is that the vesicles and pustules often look like they're umbilicated, which means that there's a little dip in the middle of the lesion. The rash may be painful or itchy or could have no sensation associated with it at all. Just for reference, people are contagious to show symptoms to when the scabs have fallen off and the skin below has fully healed. So, so they can be contagious for quite a while. Other symptoms that can occur are fever, chills, swollen lymph nodes, exhaustion, muscle aches and backache, headache, sore throat, nasal congestion, or a cough, basically your flu-like illness symptoms. And these can either start before the rash, after the rash, or not occur at all. The rash is actually the consistent symptom for all monkeypox cases. Ugh, well, none of that sounds pleasant. So as infection preventionists, our goal is to prevent and control the spread of infectious illnesses. Morgan, can you talk about what options are available to prevent and control the spread of monkeypox right now? Yes. So currently, there are vaccination options for both pre-exposure prophylaxis, which we call PrEP, as well as post-exposure prophylaxis, which is also known as PEP. So this includes vaccination by Gidiums, which is currently administered in New Hampshire, as well as Vermont. So to simplify, people who should get vaccinated against monkeypox include those who are at high risk of contracting monkeypox and those who have had high-risk contact to a person with monkeypox within the last 14 days. Thanks, Morgan. It's encouraging to hear that there are prophylactic options available. Can you also explain how these options are currently being administered in New Hampshire? Of course. So New Hampshire has a plan to administer PrEP vaccinations or that prophylactic option to those who are at high risk of developing a disease. So the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services recommends that Genios vaccine, the PrEP option for men who identify as gay, bisexual, or other men who have had sex with men and report any of the following high-risk sexual activities. Those include having three or more new sexual partners in the last month, those who engage in group or anonymous sex, those who engage in sex with others at sex on-site venues or events, those exchanging sex for money, drugs, or other services, or taking medications for HIV prevention, like the HIV PrEP, because of the higher sexual activity attributed. Other at-risk groups that qualify for PrEP include people whose jobs may expose them to monkeypox. So those would look like laboratory workers who handle specimens for testing of orthopox viruses, as well as some designated healthcare or public health workers. Those who identify in these categories can call our monkeypox hotline, which is 603-650-1818 to inquire about general information as well as schedule an appointment for vaccination. 
Thanks so much, Morgan. That's really helpful information and definitely great information for our listeners to have. Margaret, how is the state of Vermont managing PrEP and PEP? Are there any significant differences that our listeners should be aware of? There aren't that many differences, though the Department of Health is only partnering with a limited number of healthcare providers to provide Genios, and they are providing it intradermally in order to extend limited vaccine supply. So those vaccinations are available through Planned Parenthood, some community health centers at Burlington locations, the University of Vermont's Infectious Disease and Comprehensive Care Clinic sites, and then Vermont Department of Health's local health offices are doing some small clinics for both PrEP and PEP. There's more information that can be found at the Vermont Department of Health website. And then the only other difference as far as high-risk groups go is that Vermont specifically calls out trans people who have sex with men as being a high-risk population. And they're also quite adamant that routine immunization for healthcare workers is not recommended at this time. The other thing that VDH is doing is that they're providing treatment with the antiviral TPOX through the strategic national stockpile. Providers who want to order that treatment need to contact the Vermont Department of Health, however. Thanks, Margaret. I just had one additional question I was hoping that both of you could answer, and that is, are there educational opportunities available to clinicians in both New Hampshire and Vermont about PrEP, PEP, and potential treatment strategies? Sure. So I can start for New Hampshire as well as for Dartmouth. We do have a few educational opportunities, some of which may have already happened, but definitely the recordings can be listened to. Those consist of our ECHO series, which are a three-part vaccination series, specifically regarding chinios and intradermal administration. Like Margaret said, we are trying to increase vaccine distribution by fivefold which we can accomplish with our intradermal route. The CDC and the WHO website are great resources for clinicians, healthcare professionals, and the general public to refer to. And then your respective healthcare states, like so New Hampshire would be New Hampshire Department of Health, and then Vermont, like Margaret said, you can research more on your Vermont Department of Health website as well. And both of those options have great opportunities for clinicians to refer to in terms of where to find vaccines and general information. Margaret, did you have anything to add? Yeah, so I think Morgan covered bases really well. The only other thing I'd add is that the CDC has been running a series of COCA calls on various aspects to do with monkeypox, and those should be available on the CDC website also. And those can be very helpful for clinicians. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Margaret and Morgan. That was a great wealth of information. Just to kind of recap, are there any take-home points that you would like to leave with our listeners today? Yeah, I think the main takeaway that I've learned from working with the Department of Health is if there's somebody who has a rash and they're not quite sure, even if they haven't had, you know, like known exposure or contact, go ahead and come in and get it tested. The testing doesn't, you know, it takes a couple of days to get it back, but it's not painful. And that's one of the ways that we'll be able to really get a handle on this. Right. I think that's a really good point. And I also just want to add that we do want to stress that the general risk to the population is relatively low. However, we want to make sure that our appropriate precautions, especially in a healthcare facility, are being appropriately utilized. So 
we have our PPE for a reason. So as long as we are compliant and motivated to keep that culture of safety around that, I think we're all in a good place. Absolutely. And outside of the healthcare setting, you know, just because there are groups of people that this is affecting more significantly at this time doesn't mean that if there's exposures in, in other populations that they won't also get it. It's not easy to get, but it can happen to anyone who comes in contact with contaminated particles. We are also joined today by Dr. Alok Kohli, Infectious Diseases Physician at Cheshire Medical Center and Physician Lead for the Hospital Epidemiology and Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. Welcome, Dr. Kolang. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Fantastic. So the first question we have for you today is, is there a significant difference between the presentation of monkeypox in adults versus children? That's a great question. I think right now the answer to that comes with certain limitations in the way that we've really not seen so many cases of monkeypox amongst children to really decipher any differences. The likelihood is the presentation is similar in the setting of risk factors, epidemiology, and then clinical presentation more so predominated by a skin rash. I think a, a question that could be related to this, which I have heard in different forums, is given the fact that it is so rare and given the fact that this particular outbreak has had a, a predominance for anogenital lesions, should we be concerned about potential abuse in these circumstances? And I think the answer to that is somewhat complex. Like a lot of things in medicine, it boils down to case-by-case -case determination. I don't think a one-size-fits-all approach would be appropriate. One way to think about it is you've got to look at the entire picture. If there is suspicion for abuse in different forms, be it physical, mental, emotional, and in conjunction with that, you're seeing clinical presentation consistent with monkeypox, then sure, I think that features into the differential. If you see lesions which are only in the anogenital region, then that's another point for consideration. However, like we all know, sexual abuse can potentially result in lesions even on Otherwise, the rest of your body, including oral mucosa. So I think it boils down to case-by-case -case determination and really having a low threshold to suspect it. But I would not, you know, ask listeners to have a blanket approach saying that every case needs to be recorded. Great. Thank you. That's great information for the clinicians. So can you also tell us which patients would require testing and how this testing is then accomplished? Sure. So testing as of now, given our modalities, is limited to individuals who have a skin rash. So if someone's in their prodromal phase and has not manifested a skin rash yet, but meets the epidemiological risk factors for having monkeypox, those individuals cannot be tested unless they really manifest a rash. For those who are presenting with a rash that may appear consistent with monkeypox, and have other risk factors leading into it, say have had a documented exposure or fit the epidemiological criteria as described by CDC, then I think those individuals do need to undergo testing. And it is extremely crucial to have that discussion with individual labs that may be in use at your facility or the labs that you may be partnering with to get this kind of testing done. And they may have their fixed protocols, but in general, if you look at the CDC approach, it's essentially you could 
swab any of the skin or mucosal lesions, whatever stage they may be in. You don't really need an open ulcerated lesion. You could have a scabbed lesion and scrubbing the scabs can enable you to get enough sample to get the results that are expected. The recommendation in general is to get at least two lesions swabbed and each lesion to have two swabs. So if you're thinking about it, it ends up being four swabs in total at minimum. And the way that is transported now, for example, if you're partnering with a lab that uses viral transport media, they may advise you that you need two swabs per lesion, both swabs to be placed in the same tube with viral transport media. And these two uh, swab kits then need to be shipped with the right orders. If you're dealing with the state lab, some of these recommendations may or may not be different. So it's extremely crucial to know what kind of sampling is in play before you indulge in it. Now, from an accomplishment standpoint, I think right now for Dartmouth Health, we have a centralized hotline, 603-650-1818, which goes through preliminary triage and then will help coordinate testing at our affiliate sites through your primary care physician if you have one. If you do not have a primary care physician, the state has partnered with certain urgent cares in our areas, which may be accepting walk-in testing as well. So I think it's important for people to know these resources that are available close by to get tested if the concern exists. Fantastic. Thank you. So if a patient then does require treatment for monkeypox, what are some of the current options available? Great question. I think it's important to note that as of now, there are no FDA-approved treatments for monkeypox. However, there have been antivirals that were developed for smallpox that are expected to be also effective against monkeypox. A lot of countermeasures by way of therapeutics have been considered, but the one that is in use right now as the primary therapeutic drug uh, to treat monkeypox both in the outpatient and inpatient world is called tecovirimat or T-pox. Now, what's important to understand is unlike some of the therapeutics that got introduced in the COVID-19 world, this is not under emergency use authorization, meaning it's not like you get an informed consent, explain the risks and benefits to the patient, and you can go ahead and use it. It comes under what is known as expanded access and investigational drug protocol, or an IND, that still needs an informed consent, but needs close coordination between the provider, the state health department, and CDC to really coordinate getting the drug and initiating it, and then has quite a bit of paperwork that follows, but CDC is actively trying hard to reduce the red tape and bureaucracy associated around this by mobilizing the drug first and then following up on the paperwork later. Wow, that's interesting. So earlier, Morgan described the use of PrEP and PEP. Are there any side effects or contraindications for the use of any of these prophylaxis or treatment options? Well, I think with respect to tecovirumab, I think like any other drug, no medication is truly benign. And again, we're limited by data because a lot of the data for tecovirumab comes from the smallpox world. And if you look at what sort of reactions have people had when these drugs were first trialed, I think they came with some of the common side effects like headache, nausea, abdominal pain, vomiting. When infused in the intravenous formulation, you would have infusion site reactions and some other systemic complaints as well. It does tend to have some drug-drug interactions, so it's crucial to look at a patient's medication list. For example, if it's co-administered with an anti-diabetic medication like repaglinide, you could have resultant hypoglycemia. You could need to adjust 
certain antiretroviral therapeutics because of drug-drug interaction. So needs to be taken into consideration before you're putting someone on a medication that is potentially going to be for a 14-day course. With respect to the vaccine, again, these vaccines, be it Genios, we are not using ACAM 2000 as much, but Genios, again, comes from the smallpox world. And like any other vaccines, more often than not, the reactions are infusion side reactions. There have been some reports of myocarditis or pericarditis, as a result of which there is guidance from the CDC about waiting a certain duration between COVID-19 vaccination and Genios if given in a particular order. So, for example, if you get your COVID-19 vaccine first, and say you were exposed to monkeypox subsequently, and now you qualify for post-exposure prophylaxis, there is no waiting period because you have a tight window to really have the vaccine to be efficacious in your case. But if you've been vaccinated with Genios, either via post-exposure prophylaxis or pre-exposure prophylaxis, and as we head into respiratory virus season, you qualify for a COVID-19 vaccine booster, the recommendation is to wait for at least four weeks. And that's more with respect to mRNA vaccines and the Novavax vaccine, predominantly because of these known associations with pericarditis and myocarditis. So lots of things, moving targets, but I think crucial to be in touch with the data. Great. So little curveball, is there any advantage or disadvantage to not receiving treatment if you did contract monkeypox? So if you look at the data, for the most part, patients tend to get better without treatment. It's the self-limiting illness in majority of the cases. However, there are certain groups that are at risk for severity of disease, as in disease progression. There are some patients who may have confluent lesions, hemorrhagic lesions, septic complications, superadded bacterial infections that may benefit from treatment more than just conservative management. And I think the disadvantages of not securing treatment in these patients can end up being severe complicated disease. Like, for example, one of the categories that qualifies for treatment is lesions in anatomical locations that can have post-resolution complications, such as if it's in the genital lesions and you have scarring, or if it is accidentally inoculated in your eye and that scarring can lead to blindness. These patients would benefit from treatment. The problem right now is all this data is so new that we really don't have randomized clinical trials to say whether treatment really expedites recovery or treatment really is way more beneficial than not treating these individuals. And there are randomized clinical trials being planned in the UK as we speak, and everyone's really awaiting results from that. But until then, like we did early on in COVID-19, we really have to go by assessing risk for individuals and deciding if they would need treatment or not and benefit from it. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Are there any key takeaways that you would like to leave the listeners with today? Absolutely. I think looking at the the number of monkeypox cases, both within the U.S. and across the world, we are seeing a downtrend, which is extremely positive and hope that continues. But in the meanwhile, I think it's crucial to stay informed. I would highly recommend utilizing resources offered by CDC, by the state health department, and including informational resources that hospital systems like Dartmouth Health have on their internet available for people to review. I think it's important to practice preventive measures because that is going to be key to even prevent you from getting exposed or contract the illness. And most importantly, I think seeking help if you're concerned. 
be it with respect to general information, be it with respect to you being exposed or being symptomatic and needing testing or treatment. That is why we have a hotline in place and we encourage people to use it if you really need to be evaluated and treated if you meet criteria. And last but not the least, New Hampshire as a state has moved towards a pre-exposure prophylaxis strategy for vaccination. We are encouraging uptake for those groups that do qualify because as we know, if you get vaccinated, especially if you're eligible, it could potentially go a long way in reducing morbidity and mortality associated with this. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for being a guest with us. And until next time, I'm Jesse Swain, and you've been listening to Dartmouth Health's The Cure. <laughs>